This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Continuing in our series in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see Saul, mankind if you will, at his worst in terms of inhumane treatment of others, and God's grace at work at overcoming this darkness through the love of Saul's own son, Jonathan, for David. As St. Peter wrote, love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever been in a position where you defended a person against someone of importance when the important person clearly had done something wrong, sinned against this person? Such is tough to do in every endeavor in life. If perhaps it's at work, we fear we may lose our job and along with the person we're defending. See, the world, the flesh, and the devil places plenty of obstacles in our way, trying to block us from doing and saying the right things in defense of the innocent. Part of serving Jesus Christ is to stand up for what is right in the face of evil, especially to stand for the innocent. This morning, let us continue in our meditations upon the book of 1 Samuel, especially chapter 20, the last section. Verses 24 through 34 speaks of Jonathan waiting and seeking his father's intentions with David. It starts with David, as we read, hiding in the field that they both agreed upon. And then for the feast of the new moon at the beginning of the month, Jonathan sat down with his father and other members of the royal household and attendants, generals, and so forth. Saul's thoughts and asking about David on the second day revealed the level of anger in his heart toward David. Verse 26 states, yet Saul did not say anything that day, the first day. Saul noticed the absence of his nemesis, and he continued to scheme on how to eradicate David. His whole heart was bent upon rage to eliminate this rival. Saul's heart is accurately described in parts of our psalm today in Psalm 36. In verse 1, it gives us a telling look into the wicked heart, especially into the heart of Saul as we have gotten to know him in 1 Samuel. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. The more we get into this book, the deeper Saul slides into wickedness. Darker and darker. The end of verse 4 of our psalm today states, He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Not only does Saul reject God, he rejects God's servants, especially in David. 
After finally asking Jonathan why David did not come to the feast with them and hearing Jonathan's initial answer, we read the following in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. You not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul's arrogance against God and God's anointed is seen here. He in his sin is blinded by his pride and he's blinded in his attempt to hold on to power at every cost. For Saul, his power as king became his idol, his idol over God, his idol over the caretaking of God's people Israel. Saul's fall from grace is a lesson for all of us. Sometimes as occurred with him, the temptation is to devise ways to solve our own sinful problems by committing more sin. It is such a heart that does not want to humble itself into God in contrition and repentance and seeking forgiveness and restoration. No, Saul wanted soul power by, God, by giving God a lip service so that he can continue to do as he pleased. When he finally hit the wall of being removed from God in terms of the kingdom being taken away from him and given to someone outside his family, he still continued worldly solutions trying to eliminate God's chosen Saul digs himself deeper and deeper into these sinful solutions. It comes to a most debauched point in what transpired next in verses 32 and 33. Then Jonathan answered Saul as father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Saul took a most depraved stance here by trying to kill his firstborn son in his overall plan to destroy God's servant David. If you remember earlier in the Bible in Genesis, the patriarch Abraham was given a most frightful command by God to sacrifice his firstborn son Isaac as a test of faithfulness to see if he viewed his natural-born son as more important than God. In the end, as we know this account in Genesis, God stopped Abraham when he saw that he was completely faithful and he provided the proper sacrifice with a ram. With Saul, though, he's willing to even sacrifice his firstborn son for the sake of his evil ambition to thwart God's plan, to keep the kingdom. Instead of repenting, he sought to prolong his sufferings by continuing to seek God's anointed to, to destroy. Saul goes so far as even to a willingness to sacrifice his firstborn son in the pursuit of evil. The end of this section in verse 34 we read the response of Jonathan. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. If anyone had doubts about Jonathan's fidelity to God and to his friend David, it is abolished here 
with Jonathan's response to the sin of his father. This was extremely hard for Jonathan, pulled between godly friendship and his dedication to his father, the king. So the constant temptation of this world is to have us turn from God or turn upon God and his servants. Yet as our colic prayer for this day states, God's grace goes both before us and it follows us. His grace is a constant. It continually helps us to be given to his good works. And we see this in Jonathan. For Jonathan, God helped him choose the right way, a godly friendship. When we face situations where we're tempted to sin by, say, adhering to family over God and his word, we must seek his grace through prayer to choose God over man. The last part of this chapter, verses 35 through 42, speaks of Jonathan fulfilling his promise to his friend David by giving the proper signal to tell David Saul's intention. It's one thing to be angry at his father for what he did and what he promised to do to David. It's quite another to take that extra step if you will, in obedience to God over man through the next act Jonathan did of committing treason, if you think about it, against the king through warning David, going against the king's edict. Now, the biblical mandate is to obey God, as we know, over man when man requires us to disobey God. Here, Saul, the king, was requiring his son to disobey God through seeking to murder the the Lord's anointed an innocent man. God's grace through Christ aids us in this as well, giving us discernment when we face these tough choices. We live in a country, after all, where often the state demands us to worship it, to serve it, many times over God, many times over his mandate for our lives through his word. So we either refuse in the name of God with humility in Christ Or we disobey God through arrogance and pride, putting the state first, seeking to save our own skin. Jonathan, if you think about it, could have gone the route of this saving or going the route of serving the state, his king, his father, by twisting scripture to disobey God and obeying Saul. He could have said his chief reasoning in this was to obey one of the Ten Commandments to honor your father and your mother. He certainly could have twisted scripture to appease his father. We're tempted to do the same today in a myriad of manners. For Christians following Christ and his word over sinful humanity, we also have to realize we are not given a license to be angry in sin, even if we're in the right We have to realize we are not given a license to be prideful and arrogant even if we are in the right. No, God commands all of us to be angry and do not sin. He calls all of us when we contend for the faith to do so out of godly humility, gentleness, and respect. As we will see in the following chapters as David goes off into the wilderness as a fugitive, he acts in respect, humility, and gentleness towards Saul, especially when he had the opportunity to kill Saul himself, and he refused. The call is the same upon all of us today in these stormy times of standing against the onslaught 
of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The key is knowing we cannot stand up for Jesus Christ alone in isolation, without his grace, without his mercy, without his church. The key while undergoing these times is to stay steadfast in prayer, to remain in his word, to remain connected through his body in worship, to remain connected to one another in Christian friendships and fellowship with our fellow believers. David, after he was warned by Jonathan in this chapter, meets with his friend, connecting one last time with his godly friend instead of choosing to run into isolation. Jesus, our Savior, endured all upon the cross to defeat death through his resurrection, through his ascension, to be our chief mediator, our chief advocate. He, through all of this, enables us to move forward every day by his grace to do the work of the kingdom, to spread the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission. It's a hard task, but it is only possible by God's help and his grace, the same grace he gave Jonathan. Verse 42 records the final words that these men had with each other. Before they departed, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. This is a godly grace laden oath in the midst of imminent death. These are the same types of friendships we as Christians need to be fostering with God in the middle. Is God the middle, the center of our friendships? As Paul exhorts us today in verse 2 of the epistle, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, God, if we call upon him for help, will be there for every step we take, calling us to this service, not alone, but with Christian friends where we learn every day, every moment, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, and chiefly Christian love. May we ask the Lord's help for the grace of the friendship of a Jonathan and David to help us be better equipped to fulfill our call in the Great Commission, to spread his word throughout this world to his glory alone. Amen.